Good morning, Edgewater. It's great to see all of you this morning. Uh, this week, we're continuing our series through Genesis, um, honing in on the lives of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Um, last week, our brother Nick walked us through God's glorious promises to Abraham that rested solely on God's grace. This week, we will see this grace playing out in Abraham's life at the climax of his spiritual odyssey, his walk with God. But before we get into the text for this week, some context from Genesis chapters 12 through 21 is important. At the center of God's promises to Abram, like the promise of a son through whom all of God's promises would be fulfilled. In Genesis 15, which we looked at last week, Abraham objected to God because he had no child. But God assured Abram that he would indeed provide him a child, and that child would go on to become his heir. But as the years passed, the idea of Sarah in her old age conceiving a child with Abram, now named Abraham, was laughable. After all, the idea of a 90-year-old woman that was barren having a child is absurd, right? But in Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, we read, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Although this birth was seemingly impossible, God displayed that truly nothing was impossible for him. Abraham now had reason to trust that through this child, God would make a great nation and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's easy to imagine the kind of love Abraham must have had for this child. In Abraham's culture, it would have been shameful for Sarah to have been barren and for Abraham to not have an heir that was his own offspring. This child gave him hope for the future. This child was precious to him. But how would his love for Isaac be made apparent? How is love measured? How is love defined? How could it be known whether or not this child, he loved this child more than God? Flip with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. We will be walking through the first 19 verses together. And if you don't have a Bible with you, the passage is on page 16 of the Pew Bible. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Hold up. What just happened here? God commanded Abraham to offer up his only son as a burnt offering? God commanded Abraham to kill his only son? What kind of God would ask such a thing? We can only imagine the thoughts that must have been swirling through Abraham's mind after this request that God had made. He loved his son. God himself said so. It was through this son that God promised he would make a great nation was Abraham surely must have wondered, was God about to be unfaithful to his own promise? 
However, despite all of this, Abraham does not question God. Instead, he obeyed God without hesitation. Verse 3 we read, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Let's pause for a moment to consider this journey. The two young men and Isaac, walking with Abraham, did not know what God had commanded Abraham to do. On this journey, Abraham was left alone to bear this burden. He had nobody to talk through it with. He was left alone to wrestle with God. We have all had our own experiences wrestling with God, struggling with God. Now imagine the depths of the anguish Abraham must have experienced on this journey after hearing this command. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Let's continue. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac had noticed a glaring absence in their supplies for worship. He probably had been wondering where the lamb was. As they climbed the mountain, getting closer and closer, the tension and confusion must have been rising in Isaac. Where is the lamb? There isn't one to be seen, and his father Abraham doesn't be, seem to be concerned about getting a lamb. But yet, a lamb was necessary for a burnt offering. Surely, Abraham wasn't going to kill his own son. In the following verse, Abraham replies to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. We can't help but wonder what Abraham meant by this. Did God think that Abraham would, that he would provide Abraham a lamb, even though he commanded Abraham to offer up Isaac as the lamb? Or was he speaking ironically to an unknowing Isaac that Isaac himself would be the lamb that God would provide? Regardless, it appears that Isaac trusted his father, for they continued on the trek together. Here, the text wastes no time. When they came to the place of which God had told Abraham, Abraham built an altar, Abraham laid the wood in order, Abraham bound Isaac, Abraham laid Isaac on the altar, Abraham took the knife to slaughter Isaac, time is up, there is no lamb, Isaac is the lamb, but wait! Suddenly a voice rung out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now Abraham knows 
what the narrator told us at the beginning. This was a test. God did not intend for Abraham to kill Isaac. Abraham passed the test. Abraham proved through his actions that he feared God. Reading on, we see, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Before we continue to unpack this text, let's bow our heads in prayer together. Father, this is indeed a weighty text that we have read through together. Father, I ask this morning um, that your spirit would be present among us. I pray that you would speak through me this morning, and I pray that your spirit would work mightily in the hearts and minds of all of us here, Lord. Help us to feel the weight of what has just happened, and I pray that you would just um, point us to you in glorious ways. Father, I pray that you would just help us to behold you, our God, this morning, so that we might adore you. We are not worthy of this, Father, but I pray that you would shed your grace and mercy on us in this way this morning. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have seen in this passage that God did not intend for Abraham to kill Isaac. Indeed, God provided a ram as a substitute. But if you're anything like me after reading this text, you might still be wondering, what kind of God would ask such a thing in the first place? And why did Abraham obey this command? As we unpack these questions, we need to remind ourselves of who God is. Let's revisit what God has revealed about himself to Abraham so far on the basis of Genesis chapters 12 through 21. These are chapters that we haven't covered heavily so far in the sermon series, but I hope that some of these will spark your memory, and if not, I encourage you to look um, through your scripture a little bit later after this to see some of these things yourself. In these chapters, God revealed himself to Abraham in various ways. God is shown to be just by saving Lot, yet punishing the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. God is shown to be sovereign by displaying authority over Pharaoh and Abimelech, the king of Gerar. He's shown to be gracious through his covenantal promises to Abraham that we looked at last week. 
He's shown to be faithful in keeping his promises to Abraham through his promised son, Isaac. He's described as being the possessor of heaven and earth by Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And he has shown, he has proven that he is capable of supernatural acts through Sarah's conception of Isaac. Indeed, God has shown that he is capable of doing anything. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. Seeing all of this helps us understand how Abraham could obey and trust in God's provision in the midst of such a command. To Abraham, God was not some arbitrary, angry, unstable God that needed to be appeased. Abraham believed in a God that could be trusted even in the most dire circumstances. Abraham believed in a God that would provide. These ideas are not only found in the context of Genesis, but are found in this this passage itself. In verse 2, God recognizes the weight of his command. He emphasizes the fact that Isaac is Abraham's only son and that Abraham loves Isaac. This points to the nature of what the test is. Does Abraham love Isaac more than he loves God? Has the child of promise become an idol for Abraham? To be clear, an idol is anything we look to other than God to provide us with the life, hope, and security that God alone can give. This brings us to the first point of three. What does God save us from? Turning his gifts into idols. In verse 12, we find out more about the nature of the test. The angel of the Lord said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham passed the test by displaying that he feared God. In fact, Abraham feared God more than he feared losing Isaac, the precious gift God had given to him. Abraham proved through his actions that Isaac had not become an idol. But what does it mean to fear God? Did Abraham fear God because God produced in him some sort of sense of terror and danger? This seems very unlikely on the basis of the text. Throughout the narrative, Abraham remained calm and composed. He obeyed without hesitation. He didn't question God. And the conclusion he made after these events was not that God God was arbitrary and angry, but that God provided for him. God indeed provided a substitute. From this, we can start to see that the type of fear Abraham possessed was a fear that flows from an awe and respect at the majesty of God. Abraham had witnessed a glimpse of God's majesty. He feared God because he adored God. In this narrative, Abraham shows us that revering God guards us from turning his gifts into idols. We believe in a gracious God that provides us with an abundance of gifts. Children, family, friends, relationships, food, security, life, and breath itself. But it is important for us to examine our hearts about these gifts. Is there anything in your life that if God were to take it away, you would not be able to live happily without? Is there a person in your life, whether a spouse, a significant other, 
um, a child or a friend that if God were to take it away, you wouldn't be able to live without them? Is there anything you consistently seek satisfaction and comfort in that isn't God? If so, that person, that thing, is an idol. While the gifts that God gives us are good, we must beware that our hearts are prone to turning them into idols. This is a tragedy for this reason. If we elevate these gifts into idols that we place above God, we miss out on communing with our greatest treasure and the source of our greatest joy, God himself. So great. Abraham passed the test. This is a sufficient resolution to the text, is it not? Abraham can now leave the mountain with Isaac. But this is not what happens. After the angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham the first time, we read from verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, it is important to note that according to the Mosaic law, um, burnt offerings were one of the three type of offerings that made atonement. Um, atonement involved both involves both expiation, that is the removal of sin, and propitiation, that is the appeasement of wrath. Since the original audience was the ancient Israelites wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus, they would have recognized this connection to the atonement. If God was telling Abraham to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering, then surely Abraham had sin that needed to be atoned for. Here, a reminder of our first point may seem to conflict with this notion. What does God save us from? Turning his gifts into idols. But we see in the narrative that Abraham didn't idolize Isaac. He passed the test. So why was a substitute still needed to be offered on his behalf? By the grace of God, Abraham expressed a faith in offering up Isaac that was not dead. We are told in James chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. James does not mean here that Abraham's good works set him in right standing with God. After all, we read last week in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Rather, James means that Abraham's works completed his faith and displayed that Abraham had a living faith. James saw Abraham's works as a fulfillment of this verse that we read last week in Genesis 15. It is a wonderful thing that we, alongside our father Abraham, can do good works and please God through our faith. And we see from verses 15 through 18 in our sermon text that God blessed Abraham for his obedience to him. According to James, this obedience was brought about by a living faith a faith rooted in God's promises and call to Abraham, a faith rooted in God's grace. Although Abraham expressed remarkable faith against idolatry in this narrative, 
we see in the context of his life that he had fallen short before. Twice, Abraham idolized his safety and security over the promises of God and the welfare of his wife. He selfishly and foolishly offered up his wife to powerful men in order to spare his own. Although Abraham passed the test in Genesis 22, he failed previous ones, and his idolatrous acts needed to be atoned for. We likewise have committed innumerable sins. Our hearts, in the words of Calvin, have been idol factories. We have elevated God's good gifts above the gracious giver himself. Our sins must be atoned for. This brings us to our second point. How does God save us? By providing a substitute. This brings us back to verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. We can recall that Abraham knew God. And standing in the presence of a holy God unveils the depths of our sin and idolatry. Abraham was not under the illusion like most people in our culture today that his good works could somehow put him in right standing with God. Abraham looked at the ram and immediately he knew that it needed to be offered up in the place of Isaac to atone for his sins. It is important to note that Abraham offered up the ram instead of Isaac. This ram was a substitute for Isaac, and this ram atoned for sin. Here we see the foreshadowing of a profoundly important biblical principle, substitutionary atonement. In verse 14 we read, So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The biggest takeaway Abraham had from this was that the Lord provided. In fact, it's so important that it's stated twice in this verse. How did God provide for Abraham? He provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac. In order to identify the meaning of this text, it is helpful to consider who the original audience would have identified with. Earlier, I mentioned that the original audience would have been the ancient Israelites wandering through the wilderness after the Exodus, or maybe located at Mount Sinai. The Israelites and their 12 tribes descended from the 12 sons of Jacob, whom was renamed Israel by God. And Jacob, or Israel, was the son of Isaac. Therefore, the entire nation of Israel descended from Isaac. On the basis of this, it is reasonable to, to conclude that the Israelites would have identified with Isaac. God not only saved Isaac, but he saved the nation of Israel. God not only provided a substitute in the place of Isaac, but he provided a substitute in the place of Israel. From this, we can see how meaningful this passage would have been to the people of Israel. This would have assured them that their covenant Lord could be trusted to provide their redemption. But how can this passage assure us? How is it meaningful to us? I don't think I have to tell us for us to be aware of the fact that we are not ethnic Israel. However, Romans 11 tells us that although we are not ethnic Israel, we have been grafted into God's covenantal promises to Abraham. 
And Galatians 3 tells us that through faith in Christ, we are Abraham's spiritual offspring, heirs according to God's promise. On the basis of this, we likewise can identify with Isaac and be assured that our faithful covenant Lord can be trusted to provide our redemption. However, the assurance that we can find in this passage goes deeper than this. Let's take a look back at the characters in the narrative. Isaac is described as Abraham's only son, whom Abraham loves. This Isaac, as we stated earlier, was the product of a supernatural conception. This supernatural conception foreshadowed the supernatural conception of Christ from a virgin named Mary. From this, we can see that Isaac is a type of Christ. A type of Christ is a divinely purposed illustration of some truth about him. It may be a person, an event, a thing, an institution, or a ceremony. But there's more. In the passage, Isaac is offered up as a burnt offering in order to atone for sin. Likewise, Jesus Christ, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, is described as by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. However, we run into a problem here. The atoning lamb must be blameless, but we have no reason to believe on the basis of the text that Isaac was blameless himself. Indeed, Isaac was a child of Adam. Therefore, Isaac was incapable of being offered up as an atoning lamb. And thus we see he didn't actually die. But in contrast, Jesus Christ actually died on the cross. And therefore we can see that Isaac is not sufficient in and of himself to be a type that fully points to Christ. Here we see a double type unfold. The ram is offered up as a burnt offering instead of Isaac. The ram which is actually blameless, dies an atoning death as a substitute for Isaac. This ram, which is also a type of Christ, points to Christ's atoning death. Christ died as a substitute for his people in order to atone for their sins. Through this ram, we see a remarkable line in biblical theology pointing to Christ. The Israelites would have connected this ram to the Passover lamb, that was slain on their behalf in Egypt to protect them from the destroyer. And this Passover lamb foreshadowed the tabernacle and later the temple sacrifices offered up as atonement. And amazingly enough, this temple, we are told in 2 Chronicles 3.1, was built on Mount Moriah, most likely the same location where Abraham offered up Isaac as a burnt offering. And these temple sacrifices pointed to and laid the foundation for understanding one of the key prophecies about the servant of the Lord, which we read earlier in Isaiah 53. And this remarkable prophecy, spoken by God through the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before Jesus Christ, not only foreshadowed and prophesied the Christ that was to come, but gives us a clearer depiction of the crucifixion than we even see in the gospel accounts that happened after the effect. From all of this, we can see how clearly this passage points to Christ. But 
That is not all. According to the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I asked the question earlier what Abraham believed was going to happen. The author of Hebrews seems to show us that Abraham believed that Isaac was the lamb that God would provide for Abraham. However, God would raise him from the dead in order to be faithful to his covenantal promises. Abraham believed that God would physically raise Isaac from the dead. Indeed, Abraham, as we discussed, knew God, and he knew that God was capable of doing anything. However, although this didn't occur because God provided a substitute, Isaac was still figuratively raised from the dead. Isaac was dead in the mind of Isaac from the moment of God's command in verse 2. On the third day, according to verse 4, he was raised in the mind of Abraham. This foreshadows not only the death of Christ, but his resurrection on the third day. In summation, when Isaac and the ram combine as a double type, we see a profoundly comprehensive picture of Christ. We see Christ's supernatural birth from a virgin. We see his atoning death as a substitute. And we see his resurrection on the third day. Let me bring us back briefly to point two. How does God save us? By providing a substitute. We saw this so clearly through God providing a ram in the place of Isaac. But now we can see that the ram only foreshadowed the ultimate substitute, namely Jesus Christ. God offers salvation freely to us because indeed he has offered his only son as a substitute on our behalf. This brings us to our final point. Why does God save us? Because of his great love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God demonstrated his love for us by actually doing the incompre incomprehensible act that he prevented Abraham from doing. We read in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the Apostle Peter makes clear in his speech in Acts, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And why was this the Lord's plan? Because he loved us. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father demonstrated his love for us, in giving up his only son on our behalf as a substitute. This is how love is measured. And the son demonstrated his love for us by willingly submitting to his father, father's will, and becoming a substitute on our behalf to atone for our sins. This is how love is defined. The father and son were united in their love for us, and we can see this love poured out for us at the cross. 
truly we can see that the Lord has provided a sacrificial lamb to save his people. Nancy Guthrie and Tim Keller have said on this, in Abraham's day, God provided a ram in place of Isaac as a substitute. What Abraham really learned was that at the proper time, God would provide a human sacrifice, his own son, to die as a substitute. When Abraham saw the day of Christ, the test that made no sense to him at the time finally made sense. Abraham could have stood at the foot of the cross and echoed the words, Now I know you love me, seeing that you have not withheld your only son from me. We likewise, brothers and sisters, can stand with Abraham at the foot of the cross and joyfully proclaim, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I want to leave us with one final promise from the Apostle Paul. Not only are we invited into this love displayed for us at the cross, but nothing can separate us from it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, he, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have put your faith in this God, then take this promise to heart. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray for God to reveal what idolatry might be present in our lives and turn instead to God for our source of satisfaction and comfort. Believe in this God. Believe that he will provide and let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you have not yet trusted in this God, Repent of the ways that you seek satisfaction in this world. Repent of your desire to be your own God and be in control. You are not in control. And I promise you, no matter what you gain in this world, it will never ultimately satisfy you. Because God alone can do that. Believe in God. Trust in him. For the word of God says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He gave up his only begotten son 
to this end. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for how you revealed yourself to us through this amazing text. I thank you for how some 2,000 years before Christ, the word became flesh. We see all of this about what was to come. Father, I thank you for your great love for us. As we continue on to worship, Lord, I pray that these truths about you would overflow from our minds and rationality and pour out in worship. May we leave this place adoring you, revering you, amazed at your great love and loving you as the only response that we can have to this, Father. Ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our substitute, our Savior. Amen.